says, he has clean hands and pure hearts. And then verse 6, it says, blessed is the generation who seeks the face of God. The face of God is the presence of God. Blessed is this generation who seeks after the face of the presence of God. We are the generation who seeks the face and the presence of God. My goal today is to let the voice of God be heard, to let the presence of God be felt among us. But let me announce something before we go to the sermon today. Let me double down on the announcement that we did last uh, Sunday. July, sorry, June 30 to July 3, that's uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there will be a medical slash dental mission, sorry, medical slash children's mission in the southern part of Cuba. This is in partnership with our sister church in, with Life Connection Church in Orlando. Um, we are calling for medical professionals. And even if you are not uh, a medical professional, you don't have any experience with that, there's something that still you can do to join this uh, endeavor. This is a project of the whole church. So that means all of us are part of this uh, mission in Cuba. Uh, we are experiencing the blessings of God here, right? There's no chance that you're getting hungry because there's no food in the fridge. This is a perfect opportunity for us to share the blessing of God to our brothers and sisters in Cuba. This is not enough just to say God loves you. We can do something to tell them with tangible things that Jesus Christ really loves them. And there are many ways we can do to help out uh, this endeavor. One, you can come with us uh, if the Lord leads you to join us. If not, there, there are two things that you can do. One is to pray for us. Uh, going there and bringing the word of God, evangelizing the people is a spiritual warfare. The enemy will not be pleased that we will go there to reach out to people who needed Christ. So please pray for us. Second thing that you can do is to support us financially. So this is uh, our way of giving back to the people, to our brothers and sisters there. We have a church who are connected to us through Converge. It's the larger part of our organization that we are also in partnership so that the money that will be coming in will be brought to this endeavor in Cuba. So that's that. If you are interested, please let me know if you can join. And we will pray and, and really trust in God that he will do mighty things through us. Now, to our sermon today, <clears throat> this is going to be the last installment on the eight-part series on lessons from asking God the wrong thing. The sermon will focus on the last portion of chapter 14. We're still in 1 Samuel 14, but we will look closely on the battle with the Philistines, which, which was our sermon last week. Let me give you a quick recap so that we can pick up from the story. Now, we've been talking about the Israelites. The Israelites are the same Jews or the same people that God redeemed from, from Egypt, uh, led through the wilderness, and then entered the promised land. Last Tuesday, if you may know, or if you have a, a Jewish neighbor, they commemorated the Yom Hashua. Yom Hashua in Israel is when they devoted the full two minutes. Sirens went off, and there were two minutes when people stopped anywhere they are. It's in the news. People just stopped. When they were walking, they stopped. They were doing something, they stopped. Everything stopped in commemoration of the 6 million Jews that were murdered by the Nazis in 1945. They call it the Day of Remembrance. These are the same people 
who God brought out of Egypt, these are the same people who, whom God allowed to enter the land of Canaan, but these are also the same people who rejected God in the book of Samuel. Now in chapter 14, we see the rejection has spiraled down. And if you just go straight reading all the way from Samuel to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this will be the same people who in the perspective of Christianity has rejected the, the Christ, Jesus Christ as king. In the understanding of the narrator in 1 Samuel 14, this is nothing but rebellion. So it's not just Christians think that this is rebellion among the Jews, but they themselves think that what they did was rebellion. Our sermon last week was about the battle against the Philistines. The question is, why, why was there a battle against the Philistines? Because when the first time they went to the Canaan, entered the Canaan through Joshua, God gave them a vocation, a calling, to annihilate the people, to clean the land from idolatry. But the problem is they settled too quickly. They forgot their vocation. And so there were enemies left. They did not finish the job. In other words, they become sloppy. And that's the reason why they were battling against the Philistines in the time of Samuel. They did not finish their job. Now, we're picking up from verse 23, chapter 14, verse 23. Last week, we said that in the battle against the Philistines, in verse 23, it was Yahweh who saved the day. Now, why, why is that? Because, number one, against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, and countless foot soldiers, there were only 600 Israelite soldiers. It's impossible to fight an enemy that big. Second thing, they have no weapons at all. Only Saul and Jonathan have swords. So it is impossible for them to fight against the enemy. That's why if you go and read 1 Samuel 14, verse 23, all the way, it will tell you that it was Yahweh who saved the day. What that means is that Yahweh, when, gave, when he gave them the king, or Saul the king, he did not vacate his throne. He remained king. He remained the savior and king of Israel. So in chapter 14, it's a, a, a very clear lesson that Yahweh remains king of the Jews. Let me go back to the story. So last week, Jonathan and his armor bearer attempted to assault a garrison, and they were successful, and there was a tumult in the camp, and there was confusion and panic, and so they started killing each other. That's how they were defeated. So on the other side of the camp, Saul and his army was waiting for the Lord. They didn't know what to do. So what Saul did was to start consulting the Lord. But in the middle of consultation, he saw there's something going on in the camp of the Philistines. So he stopped the consultation and decided to attack the enemy. That was wrong. That was wrong. Verse 24, this is where we start. 1 Samuel 14, 24. It says, And the men of Israel have been hard-pressed that day. Now, hard-pressed means they're hungry. Hard-pressed. They're hungry, they were afraid, they didn't know what to do. Hard-pressed. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. There was a very serious curse of anyone who will taste food before the battle is over. And it was coming from their king, Saul. 
Now, there are many things that are happening in here, but let's just pick up two of them. Vengeance and curses. Now, back in Deuteronomy, it's very clear that curses are part of the covenant. If an Israelite will not perform, will not follow the covenant of God, he will be cursed. If an Israelite follows the covenant, he will be blessed. That's Deuteronomy chapter 27. So what I'm saying is that curses is a curse is a privilege of God. Only God can put a curse on the people, and it's part of the covenant. Saul, as king, has no business making oaths, giving oaths, or enforcing any oath or curse on the people. But he's now king, and he's trying to act like God in this instance. His exact words were, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. As if this was his personal war against the Philistines. He speaks in the first person singular as if he's God who wants to annihilate the Philistines. I mean, this was first and foremost the project of God through Joshua when they entered the promised land to clean the land. Now Saul is acting like he is God. Avenge my enemies. Cursed be the one who tastes food. See, curse in the Bible, if you happen to survey, has always been the privilege of God. Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the ground when, when Adam and Eve failed to obey God. Genesis chapter 4, Cain was cursed by God when he killed his brother, Cain, sorry, Abel. Genesis chapter 8, God cursed again the earth through the flood. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was given the promise, whoever treats him badly will be cursed. Whoever treats him good will be blessed. Curse is God's privilege. It's a divine privilege. And yet Saul at this point is using this divine privilege for himself. For what? So that he will be avenged, as if this is his own personal war. Now the point is that cursing is divine privilege. And Saul was doing something above his pay grade. Although he was king, he's under God. He's not equal with God. Yeah, the problem here is that Jonathan, his son, did not know the, the oath. He was all the way there. He already attacked the garrison of the Philistines. He was not there when Saul said, nobody eats until the war is over. Jonathan did not hear. So when Jonathan entered the forest, he saw honey. So he dipped the tip of his staff and tasted honey. And, it said, and he said it was good. And so... Right after that, the moment that he tasted the honey, somebody told him, your father has given us an oath. We have, we're going to break it. But Jonathan said, I did, not, I did not know anything about it. This is what Jonathan exactly said. Chapter 14, verse 29. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now, militarily speaking, he has a point. His people, had these people eaten the spoils, they would have done more to defeat the enemy. But they cannot do anything. They are famished. They are hungry. They are weak. Because they have not eaten anything. The soldiers were too weak to fight. Now, I can understand that if you go to the gym, sometimes it's good on an empty stomach. Anyone goes to the gym with empty stomach? Sometimes it's good. It, it helps the muscle. But you cannot do this, do this for several days 
I mean, especially if you're fighting for your life. You cannot just fight the enemy without, with nothing on your stomach. But listen to the words of Jonathan, because this is reminiscent of an earlier story. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, there are different stories, but stories are just patterns. There are repetitions of the same stories. This is what Jonathan said in verse 29. He said, my father has troubled the land. Does this ring a bell to you? My father has troubled the land. Is there any story earlier than this one that has something to do with trouble? Right? Do you remember Achan or Achan in the time of Joshua? The first time Joshua entered the promised land, their first city to attack was Jericho. And God said, you cannot take any spoil. Everything is devoted to God. The term for this is cherem. Everything is devoted to God. You cannot take the spoil. Nothing. But it seems like Saul was trying to copy God by imposing the same harem on the people. Do not taste any food before the, the battle is over. He's acting like God. But in the time of Joshua, there's one dude that thought he's smarter than all of them. And he decided to steal some of the spoils. He took gold, silver, and a designer cloak. He was maybe thinking that after the battle is over, he's going to open shop and maybe sell some luxury goods. This guy, his name is Achan. Achan literally means troublemaker. Troublemaker did trouble or made trouble for the land of Israel. So he was brought in the valley of trouble, Achor. There's a play of words in here. So this guy stole something that belongs to God. Gold, silver, and designer cloak. This is a clear violation of God's command. And guess what? God was not impressed. God wasn't happy. So the next time they fought in the battle of Ai, they lost. God was not happy. The next thing we read, Joshua was on his knees begging for God and what to do. And God replied. And God said, you have to bring the one who's guilty. So they, they had a town meeting. Joshua casted lots. And it fell on one man. There's one name that rose from this one. His name is Achan. This is what Joshua said. Joshua 7, verse 25. He said to Achan, Why did you bring trouble on us? The word for trouble is Achar. So it's like, Achan, why are you bringing Achar on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. This is R18. It's a good thing that there are no kids in here. I mean, they have decided to punish this guy with death by stoning. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Why suddenly from him to them? Because all his households were also punished together with him. I mean, the sin of the father has become the sins of his household. So they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Accor, or the Valley of Trouble. What this is saying is that, is that God has punished the one who is guilty. And if you're thinking, is this too harsh? Is it too harsh for God to punish someone who stole just a couple of gold, couple of silver and uh, a luxury good, maybe uh, a Prada cloak or something. Is it too harsh 
Well, I don't think so. Because it was very explicit for God when He gave the commandment, everything is devoted for God. Do not take any spoil. That is explicit. There's no ambiguity on that. But He willingly and consciously took something from God. I mean, stealing something from God is a major sin. It's not just some, you know, sorry, Lord, I forgot, this is yours. It's not like that. He did it willingly. He became troublemaker. And the punishment for that is death. Now, but here in the book of Samuel, Saul was the troublemaker, according to Jonathan. He was the one who imposed something on the people so that they sinned against the Lord. I mean, Saul was a troublemaker. Now, even if the people did not agree with Jonathan, I mean, they cannot vocalize it. They have a huge dilemma here because they're the one who asked for a king. So the question is, in the time of Joshua, they had to eliminate the troublemaker. So in the time of Saul, how do you eliminate Saul? He's king. I mean, how do you eliminate the king? You cannot eliminate the king. That means the people are stuck with Saul. Now, how many years did Saul reign in Israel? The Bible said he reigned for 40 years. That means they were stuck with Saul for 40 years. It was like in their face for 40 years, God is saying every day, this is the lesson that you have to learn for asking God the wrong thing. You have asked a troublemaker. I mean, they were insistent in the first place. It's not like, you know, they they made a mistake and it was an easy mistake. When they were asking for a king, God said, a king will enslave you. A king will bring your daughter and your sons and make them slaves. And they said, yes. Uh, Okay, so a king will also, on that day you will cry and you will say, enough is enough, but then God will not hear your cry. Do you still want your king? And the people said, yes, back in chapter 8 and 9. And so God gave them king. So at this point, they cannot just say, God, we don't want a king anymore. Please take him back. So when you play chess, the rule is touch-move. If you touch, then you have to move it. I mean, they already asked, God already gave. So God is determined that they will be punished for 40 years. As Saul has, has reigned for 40 years. Now, every time you hear this word, 40 years, it reminds you of something, right? Numbers 13. When the people were about to enter the promised land, God said, I want you to have a peek of what's inside there. So they sent spice in the land of Canaan. And when they came back, they said, it was really good. It was the land flowing with milk and honey. But there were giants in the land. We cannot play with LeBron James, too tall for us. We're like 5'6", 5'4". We cannot. We cannot fight them. And so they backed out. They rebelled against God and they decided to go back to Egypt. So God said, for rebelling against God, for not pursuing your vocation, you will be stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. It's the same thing here. The people of Israel will be stuck with Saul, the troublemaker, for 40 years. But Saul is not taking the blame for this one. He's passing the blame, in fact. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aizalon, and the people were very faint. I mean, they're almost falling because of hunger. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and cubs and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with blood. Can you hear the tone? There's something wrong in here. 
Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. He's uh, going to make an altar. Now, the people sinned against the Lord by eating meat with blood. Now, when your sugar level shuts down, the immediate reaction is to survive, and your brain panics, right? This is especially true for diabetics. Your brain panics so that you will grab anything in front of you just to stabilize that, that panic. And I'm afraid some Christians are spiritually diabetic. They just go straight to the food without praying. Now, why is this important? Not, not praying, but eating uh, meat with blood. Because back in the book of Leviticus, they were told specifically not to eat meat with blood. You cannot do that. Why? Because only God is allowed to take life. Life is represented by the blood. Only God is allowed to take life. Blood is offered to God. That's how it is in the Old Testament. So our euphemism for murder is to take a life or spill the blood. When Cain murdered his brother Hebel, God punished him and cursed him. He said, God said that it's not right to murder someone, to take a life. Only God can take a life. That's why we have that commandment. You shall not murder. It's not kill. You shall not murder. Because blood symbolizes life. That's why Jews today, they have this term for, for that, kosher. Have you ever heard that word, kosher? When you go, go to a Jewish grocery shop, everything there is labeled as kosher. It's not just the meat. It's not just what you can, you can eat and what you cannot eat. It's also the preparation. Because kosher means fit for consumption. Everything is prepared exactly right as how God wants it. So when a butcher kills an animal, a goat or a lamb, he hangs the animal upside down until all the blood is drained. Then it becomes fit for consumption. You cannot eat the blood. It becomes kosher. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23. It says, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This is the reason why Jews are greatly offended by Filipinas. Because we Filipinas cook very yummy bloods too, right? Anyone likes dinuguan? We cook it. See, to us, eating dinuguan is pastime. To the Jews, it's, it's an abomination. I mean, to us, it's, it's, like, it's like sport. You know, Betamax. I mean, we just go outside and, and go for Betamax. To us, it's nothing. But for the Jews, it's something. And this is the reason why when the church, when the early church was growing in the book of Acts, they almost split, they almost divided on the issue of blood because the Italians eat pork and blood. The Italians are the Romans. The Italians eat pork and blood. And when they became believers, the Jews would not dine with them on the issue of pork and blood. That's why, as, even though we Asians talk about holiness, the Muslims and the Jews will never see us as something holy or someone holy because we eat pork and blood. This, to them, is an issue of literal holiness. 
But you see, back in the book of Samuel, God has explicitly forbidden the Israelites to eat blood. Which means, the blood of the animals must not be consumed by the people. It must be sacrificed to God. And there's a passage in the Bible that says that fat and blood must be offered to God. You heard that before. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy talk about it. Now, for symbolic purposes, fat symbolizes abundance. There's a part in the, somewhere inside an animal that's called lard. It's what we also used before when we have that oil uh, from vegetable. We use lard, the, the thick white thing inside their stomach, lard. It's meant for it's meant for sacrifice. It symbolizes abundance. So fat symbolizes abundance, blood symbolizes life. Both are required to sacrifice for God. No, it's not meant for human consumption. And yet the people, and yet the people pounced on, on what they saw on ox and sheep and lambs because they were so hungry. The word for that is pounce. What does it mean? Let me give you a picture of pounce. Pounce is the picture of hungry wolves attacking a prey. Wolves are known for eating immediately. The moment they grab onto their prey, they eat the prey alive. Pounce. I don't want to spoil your appetite, but that's the idea of pounce. So when the Bible said the people looking at the live animals, they pounce on them. They did not even wait to drain. They just now you see why this is a direct violation of God's command this happened because Saul enforced an oath on the people you cannot taste anything until the battle is over well that means because of what Saul did the people have corporately transgressed against the Lord so the question is how serious is this sin this is too serious, serious enough for God to remain submarine quiet. I mean, at this point, God was so quiet. Now, when you go on a date for the first time, and you're in a restaurant and you're waiting for your date, and time is passing, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and so you send a text message, where are you? If there's no answer, it means no show. I mean, dead quiet. Saul would experience the same thing with God. Because at this point, Saul will, will decide to pursue the enemies. They did not complete the battle. They will pursue the enemy. But before he would pursue the enemy, he would consult God. Let me read to you verse 37. It says, And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them in the hand of Israel? And this next statement says everything. He did, but he did not answer him that day. That he pertains to God. God did not answer him that day. God remained quiet because he was not happy with what happened. Now, the thing that they use to determine if God will give them the grace to pursue the enemy or not is the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, even scholars are, are lost on how this is is used specifically. But the Urim and the Thummim has only two answers, yes or no. That's it, yes or no. So if Saul used the Urim and the Thummim to ask God, shall I go down 
And the answer is nothing. It means there was not even yes or no in the answer. How is that possible? I mean, God is not really happy. That's the only possible explanation for this one. So he called for an assembly. Verse 40, it says, He said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. This, this is interesting. What's going through his mind? See, so what Saul did was, to get Jonathan and him on one side and the people on the other side because he knew it was the people who were guilty. The people were the ones who ate the meat with blood. So he knows already, if I do this, God will punish the people, not me. He distanced himself from the people. He knows. But God wants to show him something else. And so God gave the Urim. Two of them are guilty, either Saul or Jonathan, the people escape. So in this, God exonerated the people from eating meat with blood. How so? Didn't explain. But what's interesting is that it was so on Saul and Jonathan. Now, if we are part of the jury, I'm not sure if you've done that before. If we are part of the jury and we are to choose who's guilty between Saul and Jonathan, I, I think it's, it's actually and immediately we'll see it's Saul who's guilty. But then technically, Jonathan also tasted honey. He broke the oath. But then Saul was the one who imposed this oath in the first place. He was acting like God. But on hindsight, the people also were technically guilty for eating the meat with blood. So who's not guilty here? The people are guilty. Saul is guilty. Jonathan is guilty. But God gave the Urim. It was Saul and Jonathan who was guilty. But who is really the guilty ones in you see, back in Joshua, when Akan stole the spoils, he was immediately executed. The penalty was death. So if God will to impose a penalty here, somebody has got to die. So now the choice is clear. Saul or Jonathan. This is what it says in verse 38. Saul said, Come here, all the leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. I mean, at this point, you can almost say that Saul has gone crazy. He's determined to even kill his own son, just to correct, correct the mistake. He was too blinded to see that it was his mistake, not Jonathan, that led to the transgression of the people. Now pay attention because I'm going to give you something to think about. This is not Sunday school stuff. This is not also devotional shallow stuff. But this is something to think about. Because this is how Jesus taught his disciples to think when they read the scriptures. This is how the early church read scriptures. Remember the two disciples that Jesus walked with on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? And the Bible said in Luke 24, he opened the Bible and he explained to them how Jesus is in the Old Testament. So this is how we should also read the Old Testament. See, the story about Saul and Jonathan is not just 
all about solid Jonathan. It's, there's something more in here. If you close your eyes, you can almost picture telling the people to choose between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. You remember that in the gospel? There was Pilate who was telling the people, we have a tradition to release someone every year. Who shall I release today? Should I release Jesus Barabbas? Because the first name is Jesus. Barabbas is Bar, is son. Abbas is father. So Jesus Barabbas is the son of the father. Or Jesus the Christ, the one who claims God as his own father. Who shall we release? So this is like Saul and Jonathan who's guilty. Pilate is giving us, giving the people a choice. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ. Now, what's interesting here is that Jonathan said something to Saul. He said that in verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. So if you think closely, in Pilate, Jesus, and Barabbas, Jesus said nothing. As if he was saying, I'm willing to die. Just like Jonathan in here. See, the name of Jonathan accurately describes what he's going to do. He's going to sacrifice himself for the sake of his father. Because Saul is king at this point. The name of Jonathan means whom God has given. Jonathan is the one whom God has given. It's a beautiful name. And Saul will be exonerated just because his son Jonathan is willing to die in his place. But let's remember, John, Saul was the one who brought trouble to Israel. That's what Jonathan said when he tasted the honey. Saul is the troublemaker. He's the original. Then it's the menace. He's the one who brought trouble to Israel. So if you go back to Joshua, he's the original Khan. He's the one who brought trouble to Israel. But Saul is imposing death penalty on the one who broke the oath. And by doing that, he pushed the people to commit a very serious sin against God. And even when Jonathan admitted his fault, Saul was more determined to kill his son. And so at this point, you will say, hang on a minute, let's stop in there. Why would Jonathan suffer? He's not guilty. He's not the one who imposed the oath. He just tasted honey, and he was instrumental in the victory against the Philistines. Why should he die? So in fact, the people stopped Saul from killing his own son. 1 Samuel 14, verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? They said, Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The people ransomed Jonathan. The word for ransom is padah. But what's interesting is that every time the Bible talks about ransom, there's always a payment, an exchange. That's why you call it ransom. When a kidnapper kidnaps you, there's a ransom, a payment. But this passage did not talk about payment. When the, when the army ransomed Jonathan, they did not provide any payment. There's no ransom. They just ransom as if there's no exchange at all. But they also made an oath, as the Lord lives, it's like saying, I promise, I swear in the grave of my mother that Jonathan will not die. As the Lord lives, Jonathan will not die. 
And as soon as they said that it was a stalemate, nobody moves. Who's going to die now? So if Jonathan is to escape, who is going to die in his place? Definitely not Saul. Who's going to die in his place? When I was studying this, I, I had a hard time this week because I was trying to find any rabbinical uh, midrash or any reputable commentary that would tell me if there was a ransom that died in place of Jonathan, and I could not find anything. I went to the Jewish library, there was nothing. Went to the Christian library, there was nothing. When you talk about ransom, you have to go back originally to Passover in Egypt. The 10th plague was the killing of the firstborn son. You know that. And so the 10th plague, the angel of death came, and God told Moses to kill a lamb. For every household, kill a lamb. The blood will be posted on the door, and the lamb will be eaten during the Passover night. The ransom for the firstborn was the lamb. See, there must be payment for every ransom, a life for a life. But there was no ransom for Jonathan. So how does this work? If you look back at the Passover, originally, it was not really about the lamb. It was the firstborn of every Egyptian household. So that means every Hebrew firstborn escaped because one Egyptian firstborn died. That's how it works. A life for a life. Ransom. Pada. So how can the army ransom Jonathan if no one dies in his place? Who are they going to sacrifice? See, in the case of Joshua and Achan, the whole family of Achan died. They were stoned to death. But who's going to die in the place of Jonathan? So when you move forward to the place, to the time of Pilate, and he was telling the people, who shall I release? Barabbas or Jesus? And the people chose Barabbas. Barabbas was ransomed by Jesus. Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, of every son of the father, Barabbas. He was ransomed. Jesus stood forward on behalf of the Jews. It was really no choice at all. He was ransomed. How do we know this? Because Paul said it, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Listen to Paul. He said, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There you go. Jesus Christ is the ransom for all. So what this means is that from the time of Jonathan, there was no ransom. The transaction was never completed in the first place. Even if you trace the history of the kings all the way back to the last king, Zedekiah, all the way to the Romans in the time of Jesus, there was no transaction completed. There was no receipt. He was just ransomed for nothing. So when you, when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus as ransom. That means he was the one who completed the transaction of ransoming every Jonathan, every soul, every Barabbas, all of us were ransomed in Jesus Christ. Jesus took the place of every son. He stood in our place as ransom. What this means is that Jesus was the one who negotiated with the Father. He knew that the ransom that is acceptable to God is an innocent blood. Only an innocent blood. And there was only one innocent blood. 
But that means is that Jesus then became the perfect ransom for all. Why? Because I cannot ransom myself. You cannot ransom yourself. We are all guilty before God. The army was guilty for eating meat with blood. Saul was guilty for putting an oath. Jonathan was guilty for tasting blood. Nobody is innocent. Only Jesus was innocent. See, this is where I, I say that Christianity is not based on performance, but based on faith. Because there's nothing that we can do to add on, to ransom us from the guilt of sin. Salvation is not a matter of what we can achieve for God. It's not a matter of maintaining to be good or acting to be good. We have no ransom to pay God with. There's no acceptable ransom that we have so that we can pay God with. We need someone to ransom us, to rescue us. So that in this way, Christianity is, is about faith. It's about believing that Jesus Christ paid the ransom that I cannot pay. Christianity is not a matter of trying to be good. It's a matter of believing in Jesus and the ransom that he paid. It is paid with his dear life. See, it is about identifying with Jesus who paid the acceptable ransom. And this transaction happened all the way, way, way before we even tried to change our life and be good. This transaction was completed way before we even decided, I want to change today. I want to be good. I want to achieve something for God. I want to maintain this goodness in me. No, no, no. That goodness cannot add to that ransom. Ransom is already paid. There's nothing we can add to the guarantee of salvation that God that Christ has already purchased for us. What that means is my confidence is based on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That is what we profess. That is what we believe. So when the enemy whispers in your ears, when the enemy gives doubts that you're not good enough, I'll say back, Jesus is good enough. The ransom Jesus paid is good enough. In fact, the ransom Jesus paid is good enough. That is the lesson of the cross. The lesson of the cross is not just about violence. The lesson of the cross is that Jesus paid the ransom so that we do not have to put anything to it, add anything to it. There's nothing we can do to add anything to it. The lesson of the cross is also the lesson of the empty tomb or resurrection of the dead. It's not just about who was victim and who was violated. The resurrection of the dead. The open tomb symbolizes the victory of God over death and over his enemy. The, the open tomb symbolizes that the ransom of God was accepted by God himself. See, let me give you this quick picture before I end. In the Old Testament, there's a temple. And every Yom Kippur, every once a year, the holy the high priest would enter the most holy place. He will carry a bucket full of blood and he will take the blood and put it on the altar of God, the Ark of the Covenant. He will go there and bring the sacrifice of blood in behalf of the people. If God will not accept that sacrifice, he will just fall down and die inside the most holy place. And so the people will be waiting outside. The people will be anticipating that the high priest will come out because that means God has accepted the sacrifice. If the high priest would not come out, then there's no atonement for their sins. 
See, the empty tomb is the proof that God has accepted the ransom of Jesus Christ. God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus because He is worthy. He is acceptable. He was innocent to begin with. That is the greatest ransom of all. The completion of the ransom that started all the way from Jonathan and it was completed in time of Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate today because ransom has been paid on my behalf. On your behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for speaking to us that even though this might be just Jonathan and Saul and the people, really it's, it's saying that there's no one who's innocent. Everyone is guilty before you. But that Jesus Christ paid the ransom. We are so ever grateful, Father. Our confidence rests not in what we can do or how we can be good, how we can please you. Our confidence is because Jesus Christ paid it all for us. And so we declare with our mouths and with our hands with pure heart that you have paid it all. That we believe in Jesus Christ who paid the ransom for life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.